All right, friends, I invite you to stand as a gesture of reverence and surrender to the reading of God's Word today. We're in Mark 12, verses 35 to 37. It's all these three verses here. It says, while Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. This is the word of the Lord. You may grab a seat. So we are reading this passage after our series on love, where the verses immediately previous to this passage is when we learn of the great commandments of loving God, loving people. We set in what it looks like to receive God's love, to love God in response to that, and to love one another. We come back to the Gospel of Mark, as we have been doing for, since COVID, long time, uh, back to Mark, where we're doing verse by verse, and yet when there's a point of departure where we should sit in something, we take time to jump off. And so, uh, actually, we're going to jump off right now from this passage for another series, because, let me show you, in just these three verses, there's so much Bible, so much reference to the Bible. So first, there's a debate, just as usual, much of Jesus' engagement with people around him is about their engagement with Scripture. He talks about the law. So they ask, he asks them a question about the law, since they take that seriously. Then in verse 36, he references the authors of the Scripture, David, speaking by the Holy Spirit, and then he quotes Scripture from Psalm 110 uh, to engage in this question of basically how can the Messiah that the Jewish people waiting on, be both the son of David and his Lord, which to us, 2,000 years removed from this thing, is not a serious point of contention for debate. We have a lot of clarity around why that is the case. But for a first century Jewish person, that would be a, a hurdle, so he's addressing that. But to me, because of how much engagement there is with Scripture, in Scripture, I want to take a moment to actually not just read Scripture for the next several weeks, but talk about Scripture. And so the series that we're going to do is the what, why, and how of the Bible. I mean, every single week, I get up here and read from Scripture and teach from it. You anticipate that's what we're going to do. You would be really stunned, surprised, and probably angry if I was like to read from C.S. Lewis and like preach from C.S. Lewis. Like, what are we doing? Yeah, I like C.S. Lewis, but why aren't we reading from Scripture? And so uh, to take a moment to like set the lenses aside and like look at the lenses, like what actually is the Bible? What is it? How did it get here? Uh, Why do we read it as we do? Why does it have the authority that it does? And how do we approach the Bible? That's kind of the gist of what we're going to do in this series. And this is tremendously important because of how much the Bible can be abused and used for harm by the church. And many of you have personally experienced that. It's very personal to you. Even if you haven't, you have relationships with people that they have been harmed by the way the Bible's been twisted. And it is true in church history, the same Bible that was used to uh, give hope to slaves and contribute to like the, their redemption was also the same Bible used by slave masters to do harm to them. And so we have confusion around it. Not to mention, we just are confused about it in general. We read the Bible and many of us have had faith crises or know of people with faith crises that start with, 
what is going on in Scripture? It seems weird. It's confusing to me. It's weird. I feel like I can't understand it. And so sometimes those start there. And so you might think, like, why are you preaching about the Bible and addressing that to us? Like, we're the choir here. We come here all the time. But I've been a pastor for, like, 14 years now, 13 years or so. And the number of people that I've been with that have been in chairs like you for, like, three, five, ten years, some of them have even been pastors and then come to the church that I'm pastoring at, they then experience a crisis of their faith, a tension with the Bible, and that is a reason why they walk away from Jesus. And so a lot of times, especially younger crowds, go through this phase where they want Jesus, but the Bible is weird to them, and they put more and more distance and gap between their trust in Jesus and their trust in the Bible. But what you come to see is how incoherent that is, and eventually it kind of falls apart. But what I want to show is that what we actually live is, when we trust in the authority of Jesus, that comes with it, a trust in the authority of Scripture. But we need to know what it is, uh, why we see it the way we do, and how to approach it in a way that might cut against some of those abuses. So I'm looking forward to that. So for today, I'll mention these are some resources that would be helpful if you want to read more about Scripture. Unbreakable by Andrew Wilson is like 75, 80 pages. It's a lot about how Jesus sees Scripture and engages with it and how that would impact us. You can read it in a day. Um, Scripture and the Authority of God by N.T. Wright is a little bit, a little bit more in-depth. And then anything from the Bible Project. A lot of people get formed about the Bible online, which can be dangerous, <laughs> but not with the Bible Project. If it's produced by them, it pretty much has my stamp of approval. So if you're like, I want to learn more, but I want to read, they have great YouTube videos and great uh, podcasts. So always go there. I have more recommendations if you need them. So the thing I want to emphasize today and like the next probably three weeks is that from this passage when Jesus quotes, he shows what his view is of how the Bible was produced. What was the origin of it? And by Jesus' own words, he says, David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared. So Jesus' view of where the Bible comes from is that there is a fully human person, David, but God's Holy Spirit uh, is the one speaking through him. So the Bible has fully both human origin and fully divine origin. It's not just divine and it's not just human. And honestly, this alone could help a lot in dealing with the kind of faith crises that come with how people approach the Bible. Traditional, very fundamentalist Christians are prone to believe it's so divine origin that they almost make the Bible itself God and almost imagine as if, you know, the Bible just fell from the heavens, landed and hit the good folks at Zondervan Publishing on the head, it already was leather-bound with shiny pages, gold around the sides, and voila, Scripture has been dropped to us from the heavens. And that sounds great until you actually start reading it to see how very human it is. And then you get access to very publicly accessible information that's not hidden at all in the Bible about how much humans were the ones producing it, and then humans were the ones copying it and circulating it. And you start to look into that, and that becomes a faith crisis. But there's never been a lie told by Scripture or by the church that that's how Scripture came about. So then people are like, man, it clearly didn't just fall from the heavens. So actually, it's just very human. But then we go this other pendulum swing that goes, really, 
The Bible is just humans wrestling with who God is and engaging with God. It's just a collection of that. So then it's you're reading through ancient eyes of how they just wrestled with God. But then you pull away that it was the spirit that was dictating and originating all this. And so you then drown out how it might actually have, it does have, transcendent authority over the Christian life. See what happens there? If you make it only human, you rob it of its ability to challenge you because you're like, oh, well, these are just humans wrestling and I just disagree with them. If you make it only divine, then you, it gets really weird when you realize how God has to get his hands muddy and bloody in wrestling with human beings caught in sin. But if you hold those in tension, I think we're, we can work with something about how we engage with Scripture. But this shouldn't surprise us anyway, because from the very beginning, as we've been talking about, God partnered with humans for the whole project of creation and redemption, right? From the very beginning, he's like, I want to make this beautiful world the crown of the creation is human beings who are going to be my partners. They're going to be co-creators with me. They're going to be co-rulers with me. They're going to be people that steward this world with me. They're going to be people that are my main go-between, between my good creation and me. And then when they break it and it falls apart, he then become, works with humans to redeem the world. And then at last, shock against all shocks, massive mystery, God himself becomes a full human being. He's not floating. He's not Superman. He's fully human. And yet, fully divine, he rescues the world. So it shouldn't surprise us that the word has that same tension, right? But if we lose track of that tension, that's when the faith crises related to Scripture start. But today, I want to mention, the next two weeks, kind of, we're going to talk about the divine origin of Scripture. Focus on that and its implications and so what I want to mention is that the divine origin of Scripture is shown in how it tells one unified story that God initiates, directs, and then oversees its writing process. It's one unified story. That's how you know it comes from God. That though it's written over the course of 1,400-ish years, but covers obviously ground that's much bigger than that, um, across 66 books, tons of authors, like there's... Uh, but yet one story that is moving along. You can see that the writer of Hebrews sees this. He says, in the past, God spoke, this is God initiating, to our ancestors through the prophets, through human individuals that he empowered to speak the word of God, at many times and in various ways, lots of ways in which God spoke. But in these last days, as the story has progressed, he has spoken us to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, so where the story's going is to the Son, but through whom he also made the universe. The beginning of all things was through the Son. This Son is the radiance of God's glory in the exact representation of his being, sustaining, that's the middle of the story, all things by his powerful word. So the word of God made the world. The word of God spoke to the prophets and the ancestors of how God was moving in the world. That progressed to him speaking to us through his own son, who is the exact representation of God himself, who has been sustaining all things through this same word, and it's all moving towards him. I'm going to kind of hit that hard the next three or four weeks. And so I want to show you, to kind of get through this, like I want to go through parts of the story. Brennan's going to do more of the story next week to kind of nuts and bolts of the story. 
But I'm going to go through and show periods that specifically refer to when Scripture was being written down. And when we do that, we talk about how Scripture is being written down, it actually shows us the purpose of Scripture. When it steps back and says and refers to itself being written down, that actually helps us see what the story is all about. So do you all know when the first time in the Bible that the process of writing it down is mentioned? I didn't know this, man. I listened to a lecture like five or six years ago. Tim Mackey, the Bible Project guy, mentioned this, and I was like, that's interesting. So the first time is in Exodus uh, 17, and, no, 24, I think. Yeah, it is 17. It's in Exodus 17. (laughs) Got to get my cheat code. I should have just seen this for me. But it's Exodus 17. And so in that, this story, let me just set up that story. Um, God has rescued his people from Egypt. They were enslaved for 450 years. They were slaves. He gets them out. It's a massive dramatic moment. Gets them to the Red Sea. We're moving out of the wilderness. And if you're a bunch of slaves in the ancient world who have escaped now, you're not a standing army, you don't have a bunch of formed weapons or whatever, like you are vulnerable to being attacked, right? You're vulnerable to being attacked. And so another people group called the Amalekites do that. They try to attack the Israelites, and it's a massive war zone. And God, in his mysterious ways of fighting the battle, says, like, I got to keep my people safe because my covenant and my promises hinge on these people physically surviving. That's confusing to us when we see the violence in the Old Testament, but God's promises were that these people would physically survive so that eventually an heir of theirs would be the one through whom the world would be redeemed. So if they get, like, wiped off the face of the earth, his promises get thwarted. And so he needs them to defend themselves against these violent Amalekites, And instead of just doing normal warfare, God's like, I have an idea. Moses, stand on top of this mountain and hold your arms up. And so long as your arms are up, your your team will win. And if your arms fall down, your team will lose. Why? I don't know, man. Don't worry about it. That's the question that we don't need to know about. That's how God chose to do it. We are living in God's story, and you're just living in it. And so if God wants to win a battle by holding Moses' arms up, then that's how he's going to win the battle. But, you know, your boy Moses, he's not been, you know, bodybuilding. His shoulder, he got, he's, he's in the narrow shoulder clan. He's got weak shoulders. And so he, like, can't hold his arms up. And so he's like, don't worry about it. We got a plan. And so he gets his boys to hold his arms up. And they hold his arms up. And then they win. And at the end of the story of them winning, God's like, this is like the second time I've rescued you. It says this in Exodus 17, 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure Joshua hears it. It's the first time the Bible refers to itself being written. Write this story of the rescue down so that it can be remembered for future generations. So this is a huge part of the Bible. God initiates a rescue story with his people and then tells them to write it down so they can remember it. And this isn't the first time he's rescued them. Like I said, he already rescued them at the Exodus. And how did he want them to remember that story then? He gave them a meal, right? Passover meal. You will do this Passover meal every year in order to remember who you are as a people rescued by God and what you're supposed to do now, now that you have been rescued. And so that's the bulk of the Bible. It's just telling the rescue story. Over half of the Bible is narrative. It's just the story of God rescuing his people. So Genesis, first half of Exodus, Numbers, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, that's all the 1st and 2nds, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Esther, that's the end. That's our all narrative of the Old Testament, which goes up to like 400-something B.C. 50% of the Bible is the story of the rescue. 
Now, when God rescues his people, does he just want to hang out? They're like, okay, I got you. Now it's time to just cool it. No, he initiates a covenant with them. He initiates a covenant with his rescued people. I mentioned a few weeks ago that we don't talk about covenants much in our culture anymore. Marriage is like the, the kind of, it's still a covenant, but people treat it like a contract and break it easily. But a covenant is kind of like a contract, but it involves far more relational, whole self-investment and is much harder to break. And God initiates a covenant with his rescue people by, after the rescue, he takes Moses up on a mountain and gives him 10 commandments, the 10 words, right? He gives them commandments and says, I want you all, as my rescued people, to obey these commandments, to trust me by following these commandments. Then he gives them 52 more after that 10. And then 613 total rules. Now to us, who I like to be free, modern selves and don't want to be constrained, it feels oppressive. But to these people who have been enslaved by Egypt and they're formed by Egyptian pagan culture, which is worshiping many gods who are finicky, who are hard to please, you're guessing, every time you experience something bad, you think maybe it didn't please the God right, and these gods are not trustworthy, but instead have one God who showed loving kindness to you and rescued you, and then is showing you exactly how to engage your relationship with them, and it's not going to change, and it's clear as day, they saw it as a gift. The longest psalm in the Bible, Psalm 119, is just an overwhelming praise for the gift of the rules that feel oppressive to us. And they were actually a source of life for them, and he told them to write it down. When Moses went and told all the people the Lord's uh, words and laws, they responded with one voice, everything the Lord said we would do, and then Moses then wrote down everything the Lord said. 613 laws. Because this is such a faith crisis source, in a way the Bible gets mocked, well, they tell us not to eat bacon and shrimp, we can't trust the Bible, that, let me just mention how the law works. There's a moral foundation, and you'll see a lot of civil laws, which is like, God is running this society. You need rules of just how a society functions, like how we deal with misbehavior, how we deal with people that harm people, how we get justice in a culture. Those are civil laws, but they're undergirded by the moral foundation of God's character. Then those people still have sin. They make a lot of bad choices. You need the temple laws, the sacrificial system, as just a way to deal with sin. Humans need this. We live with this conscience because we know better and to deal with past mistakes that are painful. All of us have past things that's like, oh, I wish I could undo that. The temple is a gift of God's presence with them to help them engage with that thing. And it points to something greater to come in Jesus. And then there's cultural distinction laws. Those are like the food laws, clothing laws. And again, to us, this seems like really oppressive. But if you've been enslaved for 450 years, you don't know who you are. Everything is like your mind is blended by the fact that you were oppressed by this uh, harmful, violent culture. God's like, we need a total cut. Let's have new boundaries. And I want you to be a distinct people. And the whole foundation is, I'm a holy God. You're my people, and I want you to be holy. I want you to be morally holy. I want you to be set apart and different from the cultures around you. I want your society to function more justly than societies around you. I want you to have a healthy way of dealing with sin. And all of this is looking for a progression to the story. When Jesus comes, there's no more like, 
godly, a godly nation, a God-centered nation, so the civil laws, the specifics of them go. He is the one and all sacrifice, so the temple laws go, go. And he's now made a way to open up to bless all people, so the cultural distinction laws go. But the moral foundation of the law and the call to be holy is what remains. If anything, it gets intensified. Do not murder becomes don't be angry. Do not commit adultery becomes do not lust. Rules on the outside get shoved into the heart to where Jesus is like, I have now done a new thing in you to give you a new heart to become the kind of people that would never dream of hurting and murdering somebody. So the moral foundation sticks and remains. There's much more, much more to that, but we don't have time unless I want to preach a long time, and maybe we will have time. So we'll see. Did they follow through? I love this. Moses is like, here's the, here's the rules. And they're like, great, we're all on the same pattern. Everything you said we will do. Did they? No. Man, the second Moses tells them the new rules, they discover that they're immediately breaking them. He's like, here's some rules from God, and they're having like a crazy, terrible party. Like right then. He's like breaks the, the, the tablets right then because like we got to start over. So they didn't do that. And so because they did not do what they were supposed to do, God raised up prophets to speak through them to say, remember who you are. You've been rescued for a purpose. We're going to make the world right through you. And I've been giving you a covenant that we're in partnership together. You're going to become like me. And with me, we're going to rescue the world together. And the prophets were God's voice to people. And God told them to write it down. Jeremiah was one of the major prophets. He is, is the book, it's the longest. And after he had prophesied for a long time, it says this, in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, take a scroll and write on it all the words I've spoken to you concerning Israel, Judah, and all the other nations from the time I began speaking to you in the reign of Josiah till now. None of those names probably mean anything to you, but Jeremiah prophesied for 30 years. Jeremiah's like, my man, you should have told me ahead of time that you wanted me to write all this down. It's been 30 years, man, I'm supposed to remember all this. But God's like, hey, we don't want them to forget. So much of the writing is about memory. And she's like, take a scroll and write all the things down to you. And Jeremiah's like, man, that sounds like a plan, but my hand's finna hurt, so I better get my man Baruch to come help me. So he says, perhaps when the people of Judah hear about every disaster I plan to inflict on them, they will each turn from their wicked ways, and I will forgive their wickedness and their sin. Again, the story's progressing. He's looking forward to fulfillment. So Jeremiah called Baruch, son of Neriah, and while Jeremiah dictated all the words the Lord had spoken to him, Baruch wrote them down on a scroll. So God now is directing the production of the Bible. The big story, I mentioned all those books before, and now Isaiah, through the end of the Old Testament, is being directed by God to say, write this down. So it carries this authoritative weight that Jesus himself acknowledges and trusts in because he sees God as the one not only doing the things in the story, but overseeing the production process. I should just pause and zoom out here to say it, it takes faith to trust this, right? I think that some, I had a professor in Bible college that would like to argue with skeptical atheists from the Bible, why you should trust the Bible. Like, that's a circular argument. Like, you can't convince a person who doesn't believe the Bible. But the point is, if you already have a trust in Jesus, 
there is a call to let that trust go further to actually trust in Scripture too. Because this is Jesus' perspective on Scripture. That God wrote it through human beings. It's God doing the story and initiating it and writing it down. And so for us to trust that, it's a call of trusting. You're like, how can I be sure? Just like with any faith choice, you trust just enough that this is true. You're going to have wrestling, but you trust in it. I'm going to come back to that later. Jesus then completes the rescue story. All of it feeds into him. Many of those things were meant to be temporary, and he fulfills the covenant, and his first followers write it down. The first four books of the New Testament are biographies about Jesus' life, teachings, and death and resurrection. One of those is written by John, one of his primary uh, disciples. And he says this at the end of his book. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the fulfillment of the story. They were looking for a Messiah, a new king who would fulfill what God promised Israel, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. This is where all the Old Testament stuff was going to. That Jesus would fulfill it, and that all humans now get life in his name by trusting that he is the fulfillment of the story. And all four Gospels are are like this. Two of them, Matthew and John, were people who were witnesses of Jesus. They were his disciples with them from the start of his ministry and witnessed his resurrection. Mark was written by Mark, who was a close associate of Peter. And people believe Peter just told him what to write down. And Luke, at the beginning, says, I surveyed all the people who witnessed Jesus, and I'm choosing to write it down. They wrote the story of how Jesus fulfilled it. Then they wrote letters that functioned like prophets to help then remember, Second Peter, dear friends, this now is my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. It sounds like the prophets, right? Jeremiah waking them up. I want you to recall so much of Scripture's remembering. The words spoken in the past by the holy prophets, so it's all the same continuity, and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles, that the apostles have a unique authority because they got to witness Jesus and hear directly from him. They are different than us. They're the same as us in that they're human beings, but they carry a different weight because they were the first witnesses. One more. Y'all see, I read three verses at the beginning. Y'all thought, he's going to preach from three verses. I read 97,000 verses today, but it's okay. First John 1, John wrote letters. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, we have seen with our eyes and touched with our hands, This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, and we have seen it and testified to it. This gets to the grounds of the human origin bit, which I'll cover in a couple weeks, that this happened in real time and space, and real human beings were around there to see it, touch them, feel them, listen to them with their eyes and ears and their hands. And like that's why they carry a unique authority to tell the truth about Jesus. They had access to him that we did not. Our faith hinges on their foundation. And so he says, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you that we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this letter to make our communal joy complete. Because we are remembering how God fulfilled his story through Jesus whom we saw and witnessed and touched. That covers the vast majority of scripture. 
that God oversaw the story from the beginning and oversaw the writing of it too. And that calls for our, posh, our response towards it. How y'all doing, man? Y'all good? Everybody good? All right, almost done. A few implications, it'll be almost done. If the Bible's from God, then what? What do we do with this information that I've been telling y'all that it's from God? First thing it affects is our posture. Our posture. There's three things, three, three implications. Posture of trust and patience. What I mean by trust is this. Because Scripture is difficult, we're going to cover a lot about why it's difficult. It takes a lot of work to engage with it, a lifetime of work to engage with it. You're going to run into things about it that are confusing, that make you doubt, that run against your sensibilities, that challenge your moral beliefs, that challenge what you already think, believe, and do. And when you encounter that, you have a choice. Do you give what's inside of you the benefit of the doubt, your perspective, or do you give Scripture the benefit of the doubt? That's the posture. So to have the posture of trust that gives Scripture the benefit of the doubt when it clashes against you is part of the trust that this comes from God. I'm not saying to give your interpretation the benefit of the doubt. You give Scripture the benefit of the doubt. You can always come back to Scripture, and that's so much of what's happening in the Bible, is Jesus is engaging with people to say, you guys engage with Scripture all the time. Let's go back to the text and read it again. Let's go back through it, the text and think about it this way. So there's never a discarding of Scripture when it gets abused. It's always, let's come back to the text. So don't necessarily give your interpretation of it for the doubt. Leave that actually as a place that we hold loosely. This will keep being formed. We can speak with conviction, but humility that I don't know the full story, which is why I talk so much here about this position I'm in being the start of a conversation. I'm preaching the best I can with my current convictions, but I know those convictions get further shaped by you all and by more study and by more reading and by more conversation and by more praying that, oh, I might have mistaken on that. I'm going to keep forming and do this differently next time. But there's a beginning point of trust. And then there's a patience that you can't learn all this at once. My daughter asked me the other day, Dad, why do you keep reading the Bible? You've already read it. Like, she's like, how many times have you done this? I'm like, I read it once a year, you know, for 14 years, and I preach it all the time, so I think about it then. And she's like, why? I, I just read my books one time. Like, because, you know, you go through life, and you come back to the same passage, and it hits you differently, and you meditate on it, you come back again and again. And so there has to be a patience that you might read something in your normal reading that you struggle with, that's confusing, you don't have time to look into. Like, oh, that's weird. Just let it be. <laughs> but maybe in a decade, you'll be able to read it. But I'm thinking, what could happen if for three decades, four decades, five decades, you're the kind of person who keeps reading, who keeps trusting, who's patient, what kind of person might you be? Posture of trust and patience. Can't get it all in a tweet, can't get it all today, and you can't get it from a position of doubt. There has to be belief that God's in it. Next thing is practice, any kind of practice to engage it. Read it, listen to it, listen to sermons, whatever. And here's what I want to mention to you. There's a, a, a Center for Biblical Engagement organization. They did a study where they surveyed 40,000 people across from teenagers through adults. And what they found is this. If you engage with Scripture zero to three times a week, there's not much of a difference of what it does to you. Zero to three is kind of a negligible effect on your life. But they notice if you engage with Scripture at least four times a week, 
and they didn't distinguish between how you engaged. Maybe you listen to a sermon, maybe you listen to the audio Bible on your work commute, maybe you sit down and read it. But if you engage at least four times a week, the notice of how it impacts people's life, the effects were off the chart. The, uh, how, people, uh, how much people battled destructive thoughts, down 40% if you engage the scripture regularly. Their engagement with alcoholism or pornography or illicit sex or uh, other kinds of addictions, down over 60%. The willingness to share your faith and or disciple other Christians that are younger than you in the faith jumps over 200% if you're engaging with Scripture four or more times a week. But the tragedy is most Christians don't. The average Christian in our country, despite having the Bible accessible to us all the time, don't engage with it much at all. Like one time a week, if that, and that's when they're at church, which might happen by statistics of that, one to, three, one to two times a month. People are like, oh, yeah, if I don't have anything going on, then I can make it to church. <laughs> oh, man. Um, so we have to actually do it. You know, you can't become the kind of people formed by Scripture if you never actually read it to know it, right? The aim is not to just know the Bible. It's to live the Bible. It's to become the kind of people the Bible forms and produces. But you can't get to that kind of person if you don't actually ever read it or engage with it, or listen to it, or try to learn it. And so there's not a pressure here of like, what kind of Christian are you? Uh, there's always time today, like you just start today. So read scripture, listen to scripture, whatever feels like you can do today, do that. If you're like, I have not read the Bible at all in the past decade, but suddenly I'm going to now read uh, the whole Bible in a year, man, you, you might crash. But if you're like, hey, I want to start with just the Gospels and read a chapter a day. You can read a chapter of the Gospels and literally in like four minutes. So maybe you take your time and you read it twice and you read it for eight minutes. You start there. What happens if you read through the Gospels? You know, you can read the whole New Testament, one chapter a day on the weekdays in a year. That'd be a great place to start. That doesn't take that long. And if you don't know it, if it feels like it's confusing, it's like, yeah, oh, that's kind of weird. But just keep doing it. Keep up with it. So that's the, the third, second thing is practice it. Third, uh, because I'm a bad preacher, I couldn't find a P that worked for this one. Um, I was really sad. The online thesaurus didn't help me. So I was like, you know what, I'm not going to do it. Just gonna, I'm just not going to have it, and we're just going to have to suffer. So um, interpret, though. What's our interpretive lens through how we read it? If you read it flatly as a book of rules, as a life manual, as God's like, personal letter written to you, as something magical that I just opened the Bible and point, like you might miss out on some things. But if you read it as a story, it's a narrative arc. It's going somewhere. That actually impacts how we read it. I'm not going to unpack this a ton because Brennan's going to cover a bit of that next week. But that's an interpretive lens that this is moving towards something which can help us understand why parts earlier in the story function more as a preview or a signpost for parts that come later. And so don't be put off when, why are we allowed to eat bacon now when they couldn't then? That's a good question, but nothing to dismiss your faith over. Let's just calm down. <laughs> and we can learn, there's a reason why that works out okay. So that's my, my challenge to you, is to read it through that lens. But, if, but ultimately, this is about Jesus. We care about the Bible because we love Jesus. We love scripture because we love Jesus, and as we engage with Jesus, we learn that he loves scripture too. We trust scripture because we trust Jesus who, who rescued not just the world, but your life. 
He's engaged with your life, this God who showed you personal love and forgiveness and rescue and has given you hope and despair and has forgiven your sins and has met you in your wounds and has promised to never leave or forsake you to discover that that God has done this for, for millennia before you. That's what makes us do this. And you're here not to become scriptural intellectual wizards, but because you want to learn about Jesus and love Jesus. Scripture is how we get there, is a method of getting there to learn about Jesus. And so everything we do here leads to that, which is why when we do our services every week, it is a story. We come here, we worship to, to prepare ourselves, we hear God's word through Scripture, and we move always to the climax of the cross and communion. The scriptural story up until that point is a revelation of God's love for us and human brokenness and what's God going to do about it. And what he does about it is pays a personal visit to us to become human beings like us and to rescue the world with us by taking our sins and wounds and sufferings on his very body, letting it do its worst to him, and overcoming that to say, I got you. This story is going to end with you and me, life, eternity, without any pain or suffering or tears. Hold on tight to me and I'll get you there. Let's pray.